pray. Father, we are thankful for your promises which we find in your word. We are thankful for every promise of your word. Father, we would not be here apart from those promises. For those promises have told us about your son and about the salvation that we can have in him. And Father, we are eternally grateful for the wondrous grace that you have poured out in our lives through him. Father, we pray that we would continue in faith thinking about your promises as we hear from your word this morning. We pray that we would leave very hopeful in you and in what you have said to us. Father, the psalmist has said that apart from your word, we would surely have perished. And I pray that we would feel the weight of that today. Not that we might leave fearful, but we might leave rejoicing that you have not left us to perish, but you have given us your word, your great and precious promises, all pointing to Christ by whom we have life. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 19. Psalm 19. Several years ago, Melinda and I were in uh, need of getting away for a long weekend, and so we uh, did that, and we went to Indianapolis, which is not necessarily an obvious place to go if you're looking for a weekend away, but I had a dear friend from seminary who was pastoring in Indianapolis, and so we determined to uh, kind of bomb around town for a while on Friday night and Saturday, uh, go to his church on Sunday, and then they graciously invited us out for uh, an afternoon of lunch and fellowship with them before we headed home. And um, uh, that, that was a wonderful time on Sunday, but one of the things that uh, I will never forget is actually going to uh, an art museum in Indianapolis on that Saturday. Um, you can ask me about the fact that we went to two museums sometime, but we, we don't have time for that funny story. Uh, the main museum that we went to, the good one, the professional one, the one that I was expecting, uh, had there, quite surprisingly to me, a painting from Vincent Van Gogh. And Van Gogh is one of my favorite artists. I can look at his paintings all day. And they had this one. It's called The Landscape of St. Remy. You can uh, view it online. Um, it's a wonderful pastoral image of a, of a man uh, gathering wheat outside the city. But what is captivating, if you're a fan of Van Gogh, what is captivating uh, about that painting is the, the stylized way, the, the bold uh, color use and, and brush strokes. And um, I was just captivated by it. I just I kept standing there staring at this thing, be, beholding its beauty. And I'm sure Melinda wanted to, to move on and look at some other things, but I just couldn't take my eyes away. And, and the more I looked at it, the more I realized that uh, what I had read about Van Gogh was on display, and that was the, the thickness with which he would layer those paintings. And at this point, there's no barrier between me and this painting. There's no rope. There's no plastic. And, and so I, I got as close as I possibly could, like, like right here, to, to look at these things. And I about gave the security guard a heart attack. But, but, you, but you could see the lines, the brush strokes, the, these little divots where, where, where he, had, he had swiped it across. And I, I just, once again, I actually got emotional which is not hard for me if you know, but I got emotional looking at this thing, thinking about Van Gogh, uh, seeing his handiwork there displayed before me, thinking about him and his, and his easel and, and the, the production of this art. It was incredible. But as incredible as it was, seeing that painting did not actually help me to know Van Gogh on a personal level. He died more almost a, a century before I was born. And yes, I can read a biography. Yes, I can listen to lectures about him. But really all we have are his paintings left behind. The evidence of his glory, this artistic beauty. And some feel that way about God. We can't know him. We can't talk to him. If he was ever real at all, he's mysterious to us. As one, more than one philosopher has said, all of our questions about the meaning of life are only met with silence. And so those people despair. 
But in reality, the opposite is true. In reality, like Van Gogh magnified a trillion times over, God has not only splashed his artistry and glory across the canvas of creation itself, everywhere we turn looking to see his handiwork, but he has also spoken. God is there and he has spoken and continues to speak to us through his word. And so God is indeed knowable. God is indeed there seeking us, projecting out to anyone who will listen who He is, what He has done for us, and why He invites us to Himself. The question is, are we going to respond? Will we behold, will we listen to God's revelation of Himself in this world, or will we ignore it? The one brings every imaginable benefit, the other every imaginable loss. In our passage this morning, Psalm 19, David feels the weight of this revelation, God revealing himself in creation and through his word, and we should feel that weight as well. So this is what we want to consider in our time remaining this morning. In honor of God's word, I would ask you to stand as I read Psalm 19. To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the ends of the earth, into the, to the ends of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber, and like a strong man, runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. But the words of my mouth and the meditation of of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of God. You may be seated. This morning's sermon is entitled Revelation and Response, and those are the two main truths that we will unpack this morning, God's revelation and our response. We will spend... um, Most of our time thinking about God revealing himself to humanity, that first point. But then we will take time to think about how the psalmist here, David, shows us how we ought to respond to that revelation. So we begin with this, God's revelation. God's revelation. If you're taking notes, that's the first point in your notes, God's revelation. Uh, This psalm actually shows us two ways in which God reveals himself. And first we see God's glory in creation. God's glory in creation. And then from that glory, from that glory, there are two things that we see about creation itself. The first is that creation is universal. Creation is universal. Psalm 19 opens with one of the most quoted uh, phrases of the Bible. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Part of the design of the heavens, what we see in the sky by day and by night is to reveal the glory of God. God's glory, that that word glory has behind it a sense of weightiness, of something's value or worth or impressiveness, and and particularly this idea of it being visible, being on display. We behold His glory. Shortly after Joshua was born, Melinda and I were working with the young adults at our uh, seminary church, and uh, one of the... uh, young adult said, are you, and he read a lot of Puritans, mind you, but he said, are you going to bring Joshua to Sunday school? And I said, well, well, we can. He says, I just want to behold his glory. Okay. 
uh, all right, well, to be honest, as my firstborn son, uh, I felt that way. I just didn't know that anybody else saw it as well. Here, God reveals his own glory, his own handiwork on display in the heavens. And this is not just the heavens themselves, but the way in which he created them, the beautiful intricacy and precision with which God has made them and established them in their courses across the sky. And what's the point of this? Verse 2, day by day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. Obviously, creation is not literally speaking to us. It's a metaphor, but, but there is a kind of speech nonetheless that issues forth from creation itself. And the message is this, God is there and He is glorious. God is there and He is glorious. And it's constant. The verbs are participles, meaning the speech keeps coming. It's like an open fire hydrant that you can't get closed. The heavens cannot help but just pour forth the revelation of its creator's glory. Notice how in verses 4 and 5, everyone on the planet receives this divine revelation. The voice of creation speech goes out through the whole earth. And there are words to the end of the earth. It's the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun. Who sees the sun? Everybody on the planet. Now, if you're at the top and the bottom, you may not see it for extended periods of time, but you're still going to see it eventually. And David describes, notice, this sky being like a mere tent for the sun. And how does the sun emerge in the morning? Well, it's not like, it's not like me sometimes when you've slept rough on a camping trip. Your eyes are blurry, your, your body is creaky, you're scratching a little bit, trying to get yourself awake, wondering where is the coffee. No, that's not the sun. How does he emerge? Like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man, it runs its course with joy. Listen, contrasting camping trips and my wedding day, no one had to wake me up. I didn't even need the alarm that day. I was ready to go. I was up. I was shaving. I was eating breakfast. I was out the door practically before my parents were awake. Why? Because my bride was waiting for me and I could wait no longer to have her. It was with great joy that I went to that wedding ceremony to say, yes, I do. And David says, it's like that with the sun. That same kind of joy is seen in the sun as it bounds up over the horizon every morning, pouring forth multicolored hues of its creator's glory. And it never stops. Like an athlete who delights in his strength and ability to keep running, so the sun joyfully runs its course with joy every day, over and over and over again, from morning to night, never ending. The sun is there declaring the glory of God. And it's so interesting, David's writing this in the midst of cultures that uh, were far more rawly pagan, many of whom created all kinds of uh, mythologies in which they worshipped the sun. They believed the sun itself was a deity. And David says, no, 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 no. The sun is not to be worshipped. The sun is merely put in the sky by the one to whom you should give your worship. The sun is there to point to the one true and living God who orders it around, giving us light for our lives. Of the sun we read that its rising is from the ends of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. No matter where you go, again, the glory of God is on display. The heat of the sun reaches everyone, meaning it's universal witness to God. It's a universal revelation of his existence and his glory. But more than that, creation is not just universal, it's also undeniable. Creation is undeniable. David says, creation pours forth speech and there is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes through all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. This revelation is obvious for all to see. The kind of speech used is not with words, so language is not an issue. It doesn't matter where you live, what language you speak. This revelation is clear. It is obvious. It is undeniable. Some of you may remember from an old history class that after his defeat at Waterloo, Napoleon was exiled on the island of St. Helena. And someone who happened to be on the ship with him on that voyage, taking him to that island, said that one night he came across some officers on deck who were making arguments for atheism. He interrupted them, and he pointed to the sky, and he said, Gentlemen, your arguments are very fine, but who made all those worlds beaming so gloriously 
upon us. Listen, friends, Napoleon was not not a great advocate of religion, but he was honest, and he couldn't deny his eyes. He saw and understood the undeniable witness of creation. There was a God, and he is glorious. To reject that revelation is a willful act of ignorance. And while we may look at the ancient peoples with some disdain for having devised these alternate religious myths, us modern people, us enlightened people can fall into the same trap. We develop scientific myths to explain away God's revelation of himself. That, listen, there is something just as wicked as the person in the, in the days of the Old Testament who would get a stone or who would get a log and begin crafting an idol with his own hands and then bow down and worship it, calling it God. There's something just as wicked about that as there is in the, the modern tendency to observe and analyze and categorize all of creation around us only to conclude what is seen is random, mindless, and accidental. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Thus, Paul can say in Romans 1, everyone is without excuse. Everyone. God has made His existence undeniable in His creation. God reveals His glorious existence in creation. Secondly, notice that God reveals His grace through His Word. God reveals His grace through His Word. You may wonder, why do you say that we see God's grace through His Word and not His glory in His Word? Well, surely, surely the Word is glorious. We behold His glory as we read the Word. But while God has chosen to reveal something of Himself in creation, there's no knowledge of salvation there. We cannot look to the heavens and see God's redeeming work in Christ. Nevertheless, God is kind to us. He gives us what we don't deserve, a gracious, more specific, more concrete revelation of himself that leads to life and salvation. And he does that through his word. We need both. We we enjoy both. Both are good gifts. But apart from the word, we don't know right and wrong. We, we, We don't know Christ, the incarnate God. And so... God is giving us what we don't deserve in the Scriptures, this revelation of Himself. He is giving us grace. Notice some characteristics of this Word from verses 7 through 11. First of all, God's Word is personal. God's Word is personal. Again, we're not casting aspersions on creation. We We just exalted it because it is the revelation of God's glory to us. We love it. We would not want to be without it. We see God's power and wisdom and creativity and beauty, but little of his character. We don't really see his love or his mercy, his faithfulness or his patience. But when we shift away from creation, we say, hey, there's a God. Has he revealed himself in some other way? And somebody says, yeah, he wrote a book. Here it is. And we begin to to zero in on that. Now, now we see something more of God. In fact, notice that in the earlier part of of the chapter of the psalm, when we're dealing with creation, God is simply called God in verse 1. This is the most generic name for God in all of the Scriptures. Often it's just Him as Creator in the Old Testament. But then in verse 7, there's a change. Very suddenly, very repeatedly, He is now called the Lord. That is not just a king, but the Lord. That is Yahweh. It is the covenant name of God with Israel. And David is signaling that God reveals himself in a much more personal, intimate way through the Scriptures. His power and his mighty deeds are also on display. He's revealing his glory, but he is also revealing his heart. That helps us to know him and to love him and want to serve him. Here we see in the Scriptures what it means for the Lord to be our God and we his people. Here and only here, in His Word, can we understand what it means to experience a living relationship with the holy and eternal Creator of all things. So, part of the grace of God's Word is that God's Word is personal. It is personal. But notice also, the Word is actually what makes that relation possible because the Word is powerful. The Word is powerful. God's Word doesn't just give us a personal understanding of God. In His grace, we actually encounter God 
in his word, in his scriptures, as we are reading. In verses 7 through 9, David gives us six terms of description for God's word in parallel with six of its attributes or its effects on our lives. So let's just walk through these expressions one by one and and see what David is saying to us about the power of God's word. Notice first in verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. God's word is described as law. That can mean either law is in the 312 specific laws given to Israel, or it could just mean more broadly his instruction to us. Notice this law is perfect, that it is complete or whole. There's no contradiction within it, and there's nothing lacking in it. Nor is there any error in it. It is complete, it is perfect, it is whole. Thus the word can revive the soul of every one of us. It is like spiritual food for God's people. It restores and gives life. Then we see the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. That word testimony is also used about the written tablets of stone that were delivered to Moses at Mount Sinai for which he brought down for Israel. It's a witness that God gives about himself. But just like that law, so also this word has with it the idea of warning. There are certain things that you should not do. There are certain things that you should do because God has given a witness, a testimony about him and his character. And notice this testimony is sure meaning it's reliable. We can trust it. This is what makes it ideal for those who are simple, that is, those who lack education or instruction. There used to be a, uh, an old Roman instructor. I think he was Roman. He could have been Greek, forgive me. My ancient history uh, recall is not always the best, but Uh, He taught uh, mathematics, and there was a sign that was above his door that said, uh, Abandon all hope, ye who enter in. That's not super encouraging. If I saw that when I was in college, I would have transferred to another class, right? But notice notice what is hanging over God's Word. All who are simple. All who don't have knowledge. All who don't understand. All who lack education. Come and find wisdom, find understanding. God will give us the guardrails to keep us from danger. Wisdom about how to rightly navigate life. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart, says verse 8. Precepts speaks to those things that are appointed by God. These are assertions that reveal God's authority and sovereignty. They are the deep theological truths that he tells us about reality about how the world actually works under his sovereign control. And notice they are right. That is, they are morally true or upright. I think about that and I think how ironic is it is today that people believe, really all the time, but it's, it's so much in your face today. People believe that seeking happiness, that finding happiness, comes by rejecting moral precepts. And, and yet, what does the Scripture say? It's actually in knowing and embracing God's precepts that the heart is able to rejoice. True satisfaction, true joy is found when we understand the rightness of God's precepts and we embrace them. God is no killjoy. Only lasting joy is found in leaving behind the wisdom of the world and following His wisdom in the Scriptures. Then we see that the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes in the second half of verse 8. Notice that word commandment is singular. So so David does not have in mind the individual commands, but the totality of God's requirements for his people. This commandment is pure. That is, it is perfect. It is without spot or blemish or any kind of contamination. We are following the Lord's commandment, His instructions for us. It's never going to lead us into anything immoral, anything debasing. Instead of living in darkness, God's holiness in His Word shines brightly, thus enlightening our eyes in the way that we should go and what we should do and how we should live, the kinds of things that we should love and the kinds of things that we should hate. As one commentator says, God's Word enables us to see not only where we should go, but how we should get there. And then we have verse 9. The fear of the Lord is clean, 
enduring forever. Now, some get here. Matter of fact, about two-thirds of the commentaries will say David is breaking the pattern. And now he's telling us about our response to the word that he's been talking about. Well, it's true that the phrase, the fear of the Lord, is most often talked about in terms of an attitude of the heart when it comes to the Scriptures. But at the, but at the same time, given the structure and the symmetry, the fact that he comes back and gives us one more expression describing God's Word, I don't think David is breaking the pattern here. Instead, I think he's doing what we see in a couple other places of, of the Bible, and he is specifically using this idea of the fear of the Lord as another descriptor of God's Word. That doesn't mean that the end, our, our need to, our uh, happiness in fearing the Lord is not in view. Rather, I think what he's saying is that the Scriptures reveal the way of the Lord. The only true religion, the doctrine which shows us the way in which we will come to fear the Lord in our lives. And in this way, the word is clean, enduring forever. That word clean is the same one that we have seen in Pastor Greg's sermon series through Leviticus. It's about ritual purity. It's about what makes us acceptable in God's eyes. How do we know how God will accept us? We look to his word. And this word will never fade away. We've, we've talked a little bit about, about Greeks and philosophers and, and artists. Think about all of these ideas, all of these, all of these philosophies and religions over the course of human history that sometimes have been massively dominant over peoples, and yet now they're in the dustbin of history. They're, they're little footnotes that people talk about, sometimes even with a smirk on their face, because nobody believes them anymore. Nobody cares about them anymore. That's not God's word. It will endure forever. Finally, we see that the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. God's rules are his rulings or his judgments. It's the imagery of a divine courtroom where his decisions are always just and righteous altogether. He's never tempted like a corrupt judge to do something unfair. Remember when, when uh, Abraham is interceding for Sodom and he's saying, uh, would you destroy the city even, even if it had uh, th- this few number of, uh, of righteous people? And, he, and he's begging and the number gets smaller and smaller and smaller. You realize there's, there's no one righteous in there and yet... Yet God says to Abraham, will not the God of all things do what is right? There are lots of unanswered questions about about how God works in the world. And yet here is what we know. He is never unjust. He is never unfair. We can trust that what he is doing is always right. Thus, God's word rings true both in its veracity and in its reliability. It's not going to change. It's not going to be discovered to be somehow, um, it it doesn't work. It doesn't ring true anymore. One of the things that uh, when I get spare time I love reading is uh, articles and uh, sometimes books about scientific discovery. But sometimes, uh, and and to be honest, I I, I enjoy benefiting from those discoveries. Uh, But some of these so-called discoveries and facts aren't very dependable. They, they, they change all the time. You say, well, isn't that the, the nature of science and the scientific process? Absolutely. You would be absolutely correct in that. Uh, it's constantly in a, a reevaluation, a, a retesting. But here's the problem. How do you build your life on that? If everything is always up for reevaluation, up for reconsideration, how does it become a foundation that is sure footing? Even breakfast can be confusing. Should I eat eggs? Should I not eat eggs? Maybe it's only egg whites. Maybe it doesn't matter at all. It's all genetics. I don't know. Science won't tell me. So I just eat eggs. But by way of contrast, God's word is always dependable. You're, you're never going to wonder, is it going to change or be proven unfounded? Just this week I was on Reddit and there was someone who uh, professes to be a Christian and they were looking for advice. They said that they found themselves attracted to uh, both men and women. And previously, they thought that this was wrong from the Scriptures. And they tried to just live a celibate life and not do anything that God would disapprove of. But now they've found a teacher who is also claiming to be a Christian and says that science is showing us that this is just how we are hardwired. And they were looking for the best arguments to say that wasn't true. 
And, and here's where we just had to, I just had to say, I hope lovingly, kindly to this person, listen, you, you never have to worry about God's word. True science never contradicts what God says. But if it seems to, the problem is with our understanding of the scientific process and what we're, what we're evaluating, what we're observing. It's not God's word. God has spoken definitively, he has spoken reliably, and you never have to wonder that somehow, maybe down the line, before he comes, God will change it up and say, actually, it's this, but you weren't ready for it. That's not the way God works. That's not the way his word works. It is dependable. It is reliable. It is true. Now, we may be tempted to to think, well, we could have spent more time unpacking those things, and we could have, but that's not really David's point here. That, that you'll notice, actually, in a lot of these things, there was, there was overlap in terms of meaning and effect. And the point is that David wants us to take all of these descriptions as the package deal. We want to see the totality of God's power in our lives through the totality of His Word. Thus, the Lord's perfect, sure, pure, clean, enlivening, enlightening, enduring Word should land on us in its fullness in such a way that our response is the same as His in verses 10 through 11. And that is, he comes to the conclusion that God's word is precious. God's word is precious. David gets to the end of his meditations on God's word and he says, it's more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. God's word is precious in that it's valuable, even more so than fine gold, but it's also precious because of the enjoyment we receive from it. It's sweeter to the soul than honey is to the mouth. You say, I don't like honey. Uh, Well, number one, great, that's good for you. But here's the thing. Back in the ancient Near East, that's the sweetest thing they had. They, They did not have any naturally occurring food that was any sweeter than honey, and that's David's point. He goes on to say the scriptures are precious because, not just because of our experience in them, but because we find warning in them. We are warned away from sin and destruction. God's word keeps us safe. Moreover, there's not just warning from danger, but proactively there is great reward, he says, in hearing, believing, and obeying the scriptures. That's what keeping it means. The promise of God's joyful righteousness is held out to those who follow after him in his ways, provided in his word. And some of you this morning, because I've talked, you know you have felt the draw. You, you, you have felt this kind of um, um, desirability, this preciousness of the word in your own lives. It's been a promise that has come at just the right time to assure you of God's care in the midst of your suffering. Or it's been the answer to a question on how to navigate a difficult life situation. Or perhaps it's been the very real change in your character and in your life that you have experienced, that God has brought about in you over time as you have diligently sought Him in the Scriptures, soaking in His Word. Whatever the circumstance, you have felt the preciousness of God's Word. That the Scriptures bring what wealth and pleasure never can. This is why they are to be desired, David says. That's actually the same word. Our, our, our English translations are, are uh, uh, attempting to rescue that word a little bit from us. It's the exact same word that we have as covet in the Ten Commandments. Don't covet, right? Don't cover your neighbor's stuff. Don't cover their spouse. Don't covet. And yet here David is saying, I covet the word, meaning there is this deep longing in my soul for God's word. I must have it. And that's good. It is right. Because of the value of God's word, we should long for it as well. We should see it as precious. One example of this is uh, seen in the life of someone that we've talked about before. If you remember back from our history class last year, we talked about William Tyndale. If you haven't, I'll just give you a quick refresher. Born in England in 1494, he grew up loving God and his word. He was a believer, and yet as he got older and went into the priesthood, he became sickened by the priests around him who lacked any zeal for God or his word. Most could not read Latin, which was the only language the Bible was easily available to in the end. So here are spiritual shepherds who have no access to the Bible apart from what they heard in school. And so Tyndale gets a brilliant idea. What the people need is the Bible 
in their language. We live in England. We speak English. Why should the Bible be in Latin? It should be in English. And so he seeks permission to do this official translation, and the church says, no, we cannot give the pure word of God apart from teaching and instruction and explanation into the, into the minds of the people. They'll go nuts. They won't know what to do with it. And so they make it illegal to make a Bible in England in English. But Tyndale loves the Lord. He loves his people, and he knows the value of God's word. So what does he do? He moves to Germany, where it is not illegal to translate an English Bible. And from there, he smuggles it back into England. And uh, most of the nation rejoices, but the church authorities were incensed. And so they spent, sent spies into the continent to try and find him. And eventually, he was caught and betrayed by someone posing as a friend. And so here is Tyndale at the end of his life, waiting uh, for his execution in a wintry, cold castle prison. And you wonder, what would he be thinking? Might he be thinking, Man, I'm not sure I should have done that. I'm not sure I should have trusted that guy. Was this all worth it? Well, we actually know exactly what he was thinking because we have recovered one of his last letters that he wrote to the warden of the prison. And here's what he says. I beg your lordship and that of the Lord Jesus that if I am to remain here through the winter, you will request the commissary to have the kindness to send me from the goods of mine, which he has a warmer cap, for I suffer greatly from cold in the head. A warmer coat also for which I, ha- the, for which I have, the one that I have is very thin, a piece of cloth also to patch my leggings. My overcoat is worn out. My shirts are also worn out. He has a woolen shirt if he'll be good enough to send it. I have also with him leggings of thicker cloth to put on above. He also has warmer nightcaps that belong to me. And I ask to be allowed to have a lamp in the evening. It is wearisome indeed sitting alone in the dark. But most of all, I beg and beseech your clemency to be urgent with the commissary that he will kindly permit me to have the Hebrew Bible, Hebrew grammar, and Hebrew dictionary that I may pass the time in that study. Betrayed, condemned, suffering from the cold and worn out threadbare clothes. But what does he want more than anything else? What does he say? Do this first and do it quickly. Please, I beg you, give me God's word. Because he knew there's nothing more precious than that in this life. The challenge for us, obviously, is to say, are we like Tyndale? Are we like David? Have we tasted and seen that the Lord is good through his good and beautiful and delightful word? Well, let's think about the response then to all of this. God has revealed himself in creation. God has revealed himself through his word. What is our response? Verses 12 through 14. From these verses, I want us to see four specific ways to respond to God's self-revelation. First, we should display humility before God. We should display humility before God. David asks, who can discern his errors? He understands what most of us are willing to admit, and that is it is hard to discern our hearts. Sometimes we have sinful attitudes and patterns of behavior and we, we, we kind of know, at least at first, we thought maybe I'm not sure this is okay, but now we have gone on so long in these things, we have convinced ourselves this is fine. This is fine. We, we have sipped and gulped from the overflowing fountain of worldly standards and we think, compared to them, I'm okay. This isn't that bad. Rather than look to our sense, uh, rather than get our sense of right and wrong from the scriptures, we look to ourselves and we need to humble ourselves before God and reverse that. We need to let His standard revealed in His Word shape our thinking about right and wrong, wisdom and foolishness down to every nook and cranny of our existence. Still, those of us that are trying to please God, consider how many times that we have probably, in fact, almost certainly engaged in unhelpful thoughts actions and words that came into our lives and exited our lives so quickly that we were hardly aware that they were sinful, that they were ungodly, that they were unloving. And think about trying to go back and remember those things now? No, it's impossible. How are you, how are you going to do that? How are you going to 
remember all of your faults before God? How, how are you going to go down deep when the, when the heart can be deceitful, when sin is deceitful? How are you going to go deep down in and, and evaluate your motives in doing even good things? Why did I hold the door for that person? Was it because they were, they were in need of that? Or was it because I wanted them to think I was a nice guy? Why, why, did, why did I let my wife pick what was going to be for dinner? Was it because I love her? Was it because I wanted something to return later? How do we discern? How do we parse that out? We need God's word. We need God's word. It is pure. It is perfect. It is righteous altogether. And so we humble ourselves under it, knowing that through it, God will bring clarity to our minds and hearts before him. And when sinfulness is exposed, we should seek God's forgiveness. This is the second response to his word. We should seek forgiveness from God. Seek forgiveness from God. David says, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Hidden faults is the kind of sin that we've been talking about. Others may see it. God certainly sees it. But David himself does not see it. He is blind to these failures of meeting God's standard. Again, we often have no idea how sinful we are left to our own devices. We need God's word to bring clarity to it. And even then, even then it may take time to reveal the depths of even our pride. And so we're asking God, like David, to forgive us of those things that we're not even aware of. David knows the Lord. He's the recipient of his grace, and he cannot stand the thought of these sins going unchecked. And so he says, declare me innocent of these things. And so we have to be prepared to evaluate our own hearts, at least in hearing that response and in thinking about imitating it going forward. Are we too stubborn or callous to even take the smallest of sins in our life seriously enough? Have we forsaken a life of regular repentance and faith? Have we decided that close fellowship with the Lord isn't really all that important? I can just put myself, I'm at the top of the hill, I can put myself in spiritual neutral and coast down the hill for a while. That's not David's response to the word. David didn't want anything to hinder his walk before God. He didn't, and he didn't stop there. He says, I want pardon for secret sins and I want protection from deliberate sins. This is our third response, that we should pursue holiness like God. That we should pursue holiness like God. In verse 13, David says, Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I will be blameless and innocent of great transgression. This is where the secret hidden sins lead when they're not dealt with, to bigger, more obvious, deliberate sins. Presumptuous sins are those that we commit when we willfully reject God and His ways. We may even be reading His Word and seeing the warnings to flee, to run away, to turn. And we just turn the page. We're told by David that when we do that, when we give in to these presumptuous sins, we end up under their dominion. Sin becomes our enslaver. And when that happens, we are capable of great transgression, which means something like open rebellion, perhaps even apostasy itself. What keeps him from that fate, though? It's the Lord's protection against such things, he says. David says, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. He is praying to God, do this for me. Then I will be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Listen, the Bible assures genuine believers of their salvation, but never at the expense of their faithfulness. The apostles exhort new believers to persevere in their faith. Again, not just say, oh, well, I got the fire insurance. I'm good to go and can live however I want. That's not in the Bible. In Old or New Testament. We must take care how we live. We cannot hear of sin in others and presume to say, oh, I would never do that. I would never do that. No, given the right circumstances, given a drift away from God's word, apart from God's grace, yes, you would. That is why David prays to avoid such a corrupted life. Instead, he wants a life that reflects God himself. The end result he's praying for is found in verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Just as the animals offered at the temple and the tabernacle had to meet certain criteria in order to be acceptable as sacrifices to the Lord, so David wants himself to be found 
in the deepest parts of his heart, and what is there evidenced by what comes out of his mouth, to be acceptable to God. David, in other words, takes seriously God's command in Leviticus, be holy as I am holy. David says, yes, God, do it, do it. Make me holy like you are holy. And that should be our desire as well. And as we pursue it, considering God's gracious revelation of himself in his word, finally, we should hope confidently in God. We should hope confidently in God. If you're looking at the sermon notes in the app, yes, this is a bonus point. Just fill it in in the little text box below. We ought to hope confidently in God. David has been honest about his sin and propensity for failure, but notice how he prays. In verse 11, he's not God's enemy, he's God's servant. And when he calls out to the Lord, he does so in confidence. David knows that when he prays, he need not fear a judge or an accuser the one who is going to respond. No, who is he coming to? He says, my rock and my redeemer, that is my refuge and my rescuer. How can can David, after this confession of sins, I'm so sinful, I don't even know how sinful I am, how can he be assured of that kind of response? Because of God's grace. He is part of God's covenant with his people Israel. Sealed by the offering of blood, found in all the law, and kept secure by God's faithfulness. And unlike many others in the covenant who just go through the motions and have other gods on the side, David has put his faith in the Lord alone and in his promises. We don't offer sacrifices anymore, at least not the kind that David did. What about us? Our new covenant was not ratified with the blood of animals, but God's own son, Jesus. And when he came into this world, what was he called in John chapter 1? The Word made flesh. Just as the Scriptures reveal God's character, so now Jesus, God's Son, perfectly reveals and embodies God's character in all of His glory and His grace. In Hebrews, we are told that in Jesus, God provided His final Word, His his final, through His Son, self-revelation to His people. Unlike any other person who has ever walked the earth, Jesus honored his heavenly Father by joyfully keeping his word in every way. There was never an error to discern in his life, nor a hidden fault to discover, certainly no presumptuous sin threatening to dominate him. No, in every way, Jesus himself was perfect and sure, right and pure, clean and true. And in him, we have one who lived in that way, not for himself, but for us. His whole life was summed up as the servant of God. The substitute who came for his people. This is who Jesus is for us. And this is why we can live confidently before God. For all of Jesus' righteousness was applied to the lives of God's people that they might be acceptable in God's sight. And acceptable forever. We will be holy as God himself is holy. Not only declared innocent, like David asked for, yes, that, but progressively cleansed so that when Jesus returns for his bride, we will be blameless on the day of his return. And so we have every reason to hope in him. Indeed, Christ is our rock and our redeemer. When we turn our eyes away from sin and give up our rebellious ways and look toward him in faith, we find no harsh judge, only a savior a lasting refuge and loving rescuer. And none of that negates everything else that we've said about how we respond to the word. Having Christ as our Savior doesn't mean we throw away everything that this psalm calls us to. No, quite the opposite. In some ways, it ratchets up the response. Because what we want to do is to do what Jesus did, and go deep into God's word. We want, as, we, as Pastor Dan read for us, we want his words to ad- abide deeply in us so that we will honor him with our lives and we will bear much fruit for his kingdom. Just as the heavens above shine forth God's glory, so by faith we want Christ to be formed in us so that his glory shines forth from us. So when the world turns to look at us, they will be able to see our God. This morning, O sinner, turn your eyes to Christ. Trust Him to redeem your life from the pit of your sins and make you acceptable to your Creator. And dear saints, turn your eyes to Christ. 
and follow him into the depths of God's word, finding revival and rejoicing and wisdom and light for the difficult journey of righteousness in this sinful world while we wait his return. In his sermon on the last words of Christ on the cross, Charles Spurgeon marvels at the fact that as he is dying on the cross, having bore the sins of his people, Jesus' final words are a quote from the Psalms. And then he draws out this implication for us, which I commend to you this morning. How instructive to us is this great truth that the incarnate word lived on the inspired word. It was food to him as it is to us. And brothers and sisters, if Christ thus lived upon the word of God, should not you and I do the same? He, in some respects, did not need this book as much as we do. The spirit of God rested upon him without measure. Yet he loved the scriptures and he went to it and studied it, and used its expressions continually. Oh, that you and I might get into the very heart of the Word of God and get that Word into ourselves. As I have seen the silkworm eat into the leaf and consume it, so we ought to do with the Word of the Lord. Not crawl over its surface, but eat right into it until we have taken it into our inmost parts. It is idle to merely let the eye glance over the words or to recollect the poetical expressions or the historical facts, but it is blessed to eat into the very soul of the Bible until at last you come to talk in scriptural language and your very style is fashioned upon scripture models and what is better still, your spirit is flavored with the words of the Lord. May it be so of us for Christ and his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we are staggered by your immensity. Even as we perhaps have read articles about this comet that's been recently discovered that only comes within viewing distance of the earth every 50,000 years. And we think to ourselves, God did that. God created that comet. God put it on its course. Father, how can we not stand back in awe at the glory with which you have made this creation? As we enjoy the sun on warm days, as we enjoy the life that it gives to this world, Father, how can we not stand back in awe? But Father, even more, the grace that you give us through your word to know you, to come to be acceptable in your sight, to have the righteousness of your own son, Jesus, all the witness, the testimony, the perfect word that you have given to us. Father, we pray that we would not abandon your word, that we would not take it lightly. Father, we pray that Bible reading would not be a chore, a mere task to accomplish in the day that we might feel good about ourselves, but that, Father, we might earnestly seek you through the scriptures. It is our prayer that as we do so, that the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts would indeed be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer.